0: All right, we're ready to roll. Uh, again, good morning, and uh, again, happy Father's Day to where the shoe fits. We did this at 9 o'clock. It was a little weird. we got to carry it over. Um, Shout-out time for Abraham. His father means the father of many nations. Let's give it up for Abraham today, all right? Because I know that was flowing out of all of our hearts. Um, last day, guys. It's the finale. Final day of questions you never thought you could ask in church. For the initiated, you know how this is going to roll. Get ready to start texting. For the uninitiated, here's what we need you to do. Pull this out right now. Take out your phone, and in about 30 seconds, I'm going to flash a number up there. And what I'm going to invite you to do is text in any question you have on God, Christian theology, the Bible, fellowship of faith, Church life, how it all fits together, and um, I will get these anonymously, and I am going to do the best job I can to just answer them in real time here on the spot. So I've showed you this slide for two weeks now. I believe it enough. I think it's important enough that we're going to look at it again. Take thirty seconds and uh, read it. You know, I I mean, I I do. I, I believe that, and it wells in my soul and. And it's and it's really driving what today is about. I hope it wells in yours as well, no matter what questions you have, the ones you've been afraid to ask, the ones you're embarrassed about, the ones that you fear expose something in your life that you don't want exposed, the ones that you just think people are gonna judge you if you ask, This is the time. Here is the number: 815-314-0363 Text them in right now, eight one five three one four zero three six three or 0FOF. Now, if you've texted questions in the last couple of weeks that I did not get to, I am batting cleanup right off the bat. All right, so I've got those. Let's jump on in. Why do you think God allows sin on earth? Because God is a God of immense and crazy freedom, period. The nature of freedom demands choice. The nature of freedom allows people to love or to hate, to honor or to blaspheme, to obey or to rebel. And it's crazy to me that the God of this universe, who loves it the way he does to the point of his own death, when he could force people to follow him, doesn't. And that is a dark side. Freedom has a dark side, doesn't it? But is it better by far? And I think that's why God allows it. Why did God make the flood and kill people? And the ten commandments say no murdering. These are taken word for word off the text. And so, are you following the gist of what's being asked here? Someone asked a very similar question today at nine o'clock, and I'm going to answer it on very similar terms. Parents, do you have rules for your kids that you don't follow? <laughs> Honestly. Right? Does that make you a terrible person? Does that put you in the wrong? Well, sometimes it does, right? But does it put you in the wrong? God can fundamentally do what he wants. And some people have wrestled with with this concept of God killing people. Can I ask you a simple question and let's try to frame this? Do you wash your hands? Good. All right? Do you know how many millions of germs you kill every time you wash your hands? Now think of a being like a germ in relation to you. Do you think there is an equivalency there between our existence and God's? Or is God even more infinite than that? Yet God, who creates us and germs, dies for us? Would you die for your germs Not willingly anyway, right? Not willingly, only if they took control. And yet that's what God did for you. So yes, God gives commands to us that he is not obligated to follow. But if that gives you a weird conception of God, just think of how farther to the extreme God goes than any one of us here. Make sense? Hopefully. Let's keep going. Another question from a couple weeks ago. How is God a loving God and a just God? There's a dichotomy between the two, especially in the Old Testament. For example, in Exodus, God and Moses had the Levites kill 3,000 other Jews because of their idolatry. While just, how is that acting, the loving one? Um, there is this strange God dichotomy between love and justice. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And God somehow is infinitely both. How does God do it? He takes justice upon himself. This is why Jesus died. It is the ultimate act of God's justice. Every single one of here, according to the scriptures, deserves to be judged. Judged in the courts of this world, to be sure, I'm sure, in many ways, but judged by God. Every one of us here, is worthy of judgment by God. But in God's heart, his desire for mercy trumps his desire for justice. But because he is just, he will still do what is right, and so he takes the punishment that we deserve and pours it on himself. Now, does that mean that at times God doesn't act justly in this world, as is deserved or merited? Absolutely not, and it's a good thing he does. Would you want a country that never upheld justice? See, God can't win on this one. Because if people call God merciful, then they ask questions like, why does he allow sin in this world? Isn't that mercy? And yet if God judges someone, they accuse him of not being a God of mercy. And God has found this amazing way to do both. That's kind of a short answer. A couple of other things I would just add. You say especially the Old Testament. It's there in the New Testament as well. And a lot of what the New Testament does is show that merciful side of God because in Acts chapter 2, at the same event where the 3,000 Jews were killed for idolatry, 3,000 are brought to Christ because of the outpouring of God's Spirit, which he did not have to give. You see in the undercurrents of the storyline, God's mercy always trying to infuse the justice he has to bring. Probably more than the scope of what you wanted. Let's move on. My mission for Christ is criticized to the ninth degree. I will not stop, however. But how do I stop their verbal comments openly? You can't. I hate to be blunt, you just can't. People can say what they want, and you can beg and cry and scream, and at the end of the day, you can't stop anything. Now, I would suggest you go talk to them. Go talk to them, and actually in a very, very discreet, one-to-one, sincere, vulnerable way. Go to someone, if there's someone in mind, and go, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but this is like, this is cutting me. This is hurting me. When you say this, this is what it's doing to me, and I just really want to ask, please don't do that anymore. It's amazing how far a kind conversation in this world can actually go. And if that doesn't do it, bear your cross. Jesus did. Maybe distance yourself to a degree and take yourselves out of toxic situations, if it's prudent or or can be. But fundamentally, following God's call in this world will mean things like criticism and sometimes far worse. Now, one more thing. We're assuming that the mission you have identified is actually a good one. Talk to some trusted friends, some spiritual leaders, and tell them about your mission and make sure it actually is a mission from Christ and not a mission of your own self-making. See what I mean? Good question. Do we have guardian angels? Well, there are angels. God uses them. They're active in this world. Whether there's one assigned to you, I don't know. What would Jesus think of expensive personal jewelry like crosses and star of David? Depends how gaudy it is, you know. I mean, it just doesn't it go. It, it. There is a trend, not just in Christian history, but in many faith traditions and philosophical traditions, to to reject nice things because couldn't that money be used in better ways? Couldn't that money be used? for the poor? Couldn't that money be used for for, for the mission and work that God is doing? And, And maybe, maybe. But there's this amazing passage in the Bible where this woman comes before Jesus and she takes us this very expensive perfume. It says it's worth eight months' wages. That's ridiculous, all right? No one should be buying perfume that expensive, all right? She busts it open and pours it on Jesus' feet. And the disciples say, what a waste. What an absolute waste. And you know what Jesus says? Back off. She did a beautiful thing. If you have got expensive jewelry, a cross, a star of David, and this isn't somehow an expression of God's beauty in this world, your love for him, your devotion to him, you're not going into hock to make it happen, or you know all these other like, worst-case scenarios we could devise. What a beautiful thing. But examine yourself. Examine yourself, because often our beautiful things can, can take our attention from the beautiful one. Does it define you? Does it drive you? Is it more about status than other meaning? You got a soul search on this one. I don't know where you're coming from. Let's talk, if you'd like to go a bit deeper. Another from last week. Jesus commanded us to observe seven specific holy days. Well, Let me clarify, the Old Testament lays out seven holidays. Jesus never specifically commanded them. Since today, most Christians don't observe them like Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah, did Jesus mean um, just kind of observe them if they are convenient? And let's throw this one in the mix. Why worship Sunday when Sabbath is on Saturday? short answer is this. In the Old Testament, There were these commands laid out, and a lot of them. And in the New Testament, the teaching is pretty clear. You are no longer under the law. No longer obligated to celebrate Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. No longer obligated to worship or rest, shall we say, on the seventh day of the week. So while I wouldn't use the term just when they are convenient... I would instead maybe morph it to say something like this. Worship as you want. Use them as you want as an expression of faith and fulfillment of what God has done in Jesus Christ. It leads to this one. Would it be wrong for a Christian to celebrate Hanukkah as well as Christmas? No. No, double the presents, right? Load them up. Not at all, but here's the thing you've got to remember. Hanukkah is a holiday that devised about 165 BC in celebration of God preserving the temple, okay? But when Jesus comes along, he says, more or less, I am the fulfillment of the temple and that the people of God as they exist today, Jew and Gentile alike, together as believers in Messiah of Israel, we are the temple." So if you want to celebrate Hanukkah, like, remember when God did that cool thing back then? Hey, celebrate it hard, celebrate it strong. But if you're celebrating it as though the temple is still the primary thing over what Jesus has done it today, don't let it divert your focus from the greater thing that's here. Does that make sense? With there, lots and lots of freedom. And something tells me we're getting a menorah this December. (laughs) Jesus was a man who crossed many lines and broke through walls. Did he ever experience bacon? (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. This one I liked. If marijuana is legalized, is there any reason biblically not to partake? Short answer first and the long one. Short answer is no. No. Marijuana is a gift of God. Just like alcohol is a gift of God. Just like the poppy plant, which gives us heroin, but also morphine, is a gift of God. God gives us many amazing gifts. We have this woman, and she said, I could share this, who's been struggling with MS for 10 years, and her doctor is saying, this plant is, could help you. And I hope she takes it. I hope she takes it because God has brought a gift into this world that can help her through this time. My dad committed suicide two years ago. I am not joking when I say this. I am convinced the medicinal power of that plant may have kept him alive today. So no, there is no biblical reason to write it off completely. However, like any gift of God, we can really screw it up. And so just like your jewelry question, just like your Star of David cross question, why are you doing it? Are you doing it to escape your problems? Are you doing it and putting yourself in positions that's dishonoring to Christ and your family? It's making you less than all that God has called you to be in this world. There's other ethical and moral ramifications that need to be worked through. So believe me, Parents, don't get too afraid. I'm not advocating that your 16-year-olds go out and start token up, all right? I'm really not. But I think an equal and opposite mayor could be made as the question has been presented of throwing the baby out with the bathwater as well. So that's cleanup, guys. Oh, no, not quite. <laughs> if there's no marriage in heaven, does that mean there's no sex in heaven? There is no sex in heaven, but the resurrection? That's a different question. After the resurrection, what will our relationships be like with people? Will there be romance, eros, love? There is a lot that the Bible says about the new heavens, new earth, about the new creation and resurrection. And there is a lot that it doesn't. The best model in my mind to think of what eternity will be like And God's new creation is the Garden of Eden. What God created in the Garden of Eden was the germ and kernel of what God always intended creation to be. So it is physical, tangible, matter. It's not so much a spacewalk in the clouds as it is waterfalls and dolphins and human beings in relationship with each other and in relationship with God, furthering his work and furthering his creation and furthering all that God meant it to be. Now, Jesus got asked a similar question once, and it was specifically about marriage, so I can't go the same. And they were going to, going to be marriage in heaven, and Jesus was like, man, you're whacked out. There's no marriage in heaven. Because when you're in heaven, you're going to be like the angels, which I guess, according to Ezekiel, means you've got a lion's head and a bull's head, but I don't know what that's all about. He seemed to indicate there wouldn't be marriage, but I don't know what that has to say about physicality itself, because then you have to ask, were Adam and Eve married? And do you see how far the rabbit hole goes? Just some things to think about on this Father's Day. All right. Did Jesus know he was divine when he was a kid? The best I can give you is I really think so. I really think so, despite that he grew in wisdom and understanding of figuring out who he was in God's call in his life and what was up. But you do seem to get that indication, in my opinion, from the Gospels. And do Protestants practice exorcisms. Yes, they do. What is the difference between a disciple and an apostle? The Greek words underneath, we're going to learn them today. The Greek word for apostle is apostolos. Give it to me. That's a tough one to figure out, isn't it? All right, this is what apostle means. Ambassador. If you were to translate apostolos, instead of transliterate just the sounds, it would translate as ambassador. An apostle is an ambassador. One who is sent on behalf of a king with authority to make decisions and speak for the king. A disciple, the Greek word is mathetes. Give me a mathetes. Well done. This side of the room, give me a mathetes. That's still weak. All right, that's still weak. A disciple is this. You know, you hear it kind of translated as follower, but like, what does that mean? Here's the best way to understand it. A disciple is one who wants to be the person that they're following. It's a hardcore wannabe. It's a hardcore groupie. It's one who's like, I would give anything for that person to acknowledge me, to know me, to recognize me. I would give anything to be like that person. It's so much more than a student in this world. To be a disciple of Jesus is not one to just learn some stuff about him and go, that's cool. I can roll with that. To be a disciple is to be one who says, I want to be like him. And I'll do anything for him to think that I was great too. You know what I mean? Here's the cool thing. The New Testament, it calls you both. Do you know that you're a disciple? Or at least called to be? You know that you're an apostle too? I think that that's cleanup. So, let's get to what you texted in today. All right, here we go. How do I explain the Trinity to a Muslim who says we worship three gods? Respectfully, kindly, and with all due sensitivity to the honesty of their question. This is what I would suggest you say. We don't worship three gods. We worship one. And the concept of this, while articulated in Christian theology, is deeply embedded within Old Testament scriptures and Judaism. I will give you one key example that any Muslim should be able to roll with, and any Jew. Do you know how in Old Testament theology it would say that God's spirit, his shekinah, his presence, would come to dwell in the temple? If you don't just say yes, all right? Just say I yeah, I know what you're talking about. In Old Testament theology, God's spirit, God's presence would come to be in the temple. But no one in a million years thought that God had like kind of like vacated heaven. You know what I mean? Or that God wasn't to be found anywhere. They knew that what was in God was his manifest presence, but it was not the sum total of his presence. It was not the complete package of his presence, and there was still some distinction between the God who spoke on the mountains and the gods whose presence came to be with him. Same God, but they just kind of rolled with it. Are you getting some traction here? Do you see what I mean? See, the fundamental point of why Jesus is God is not because of these New Testament passages that say Jesus is God, though some do. It's that when you see Jesus come on the scene, he is doing everything that the Old Testament promised Yahweh would do. So when the, Yahweh, when the Old Testament would say Yahweh would come back to dwell with his people, we see Jesus walking with his people. When it says that Yahweh would come back to redeem his people, we see Jesus redeeming his people. And the Gospels drip with this, example after example. Almost like God's shekinah presence in the Old Testament, we see Jesus, Yahweh, somehow manifest here despite being one God. And my experience has been, if you can explain it on that lines, somehow a window of understanding, of mutual understanding starts to open because we can identify with the same scripture, not just the New Testament. Does that make sense? All right. Good one. Good one. And and I hope it's not theoretical. I hope that uh, you actually are in conversation and uh, this is happening. If the miracles that God performed in the Bible through his chosen were to be scientifically proven, would it make them any less a miracle? And I would say no. But I'd also say be careful of your terminology because to scientifically prove something is to be able to replicate it again and again and again under controlled circumstances. And that's just not how miracles often work. Jesus, he rose from the dead, right? I don't know how we're going to repeat this one, guys. Right? So how would you scientifically prove it? But with that understanding in mind, no. No, if they were to be scientifically proven, I think we have lost wonder for the natural order of what God has made. I, do you know in the Old Testament there's no word for miracle? This is, a, this is a, a Greek conception. This is a Western conception. Because in the Old Testament, God ruled the world. God's fiber was active in everything. And whether God acted directly or God acted through means, it was like it's still God, right? Right? Can one save an atheist by praying for them if they, assuming the atheist, I I think, is a good person? If someone lives a very good life of charity but denied God, are they doomed to eternity in hell? First, you cannot save anyone. Only God can save people. You cannot convert anyone. Only God can convert people. But can you pray for someone that you love that is denied or rejected or doesn't believe in God? Absolutely, and prayer is a powerful thing, and God will honor that prayer despite he will not force a person ultimately at the end of the day. And so I encourage you to be praying for that. But if they are a good person, do you know what Jesus says? No one is good. His words, not mine. No one is good but God. And if you're still living under the delusion that somehow we live up to God's standards or glory, can I just encourage you to do some more honest, serious soul-searching and scripture-searching and see how it convicts you? See, what's fundamental is all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us deserve punishment from God. It's not like God has set up some arbitrary system of going, here's some nice people, but if they believe, I'll reward them. It's God saying, we're all going to hell in a handbasket, and I sent my son to save them. hold on to the lifeline, Amen? Can Christianity go hand in hand with theories like string theory, Big Bang, evolution? There's a few different there, and the answer is maybe. It depends on what theories. Um, Scientific theories are not inviolate. The nature of scientific theories is that they should be changing as new discoveries are made. And yes, in many ways, Bible science, harmonious. Sometimes theories are out there that aren't. Big question there. While godly and righteous is marriage an ultimately man-made institution. I am going to answer this one very woodenly, technically, and literally. Yes. Yes. It's interesting in this, uh, this day and age how what we took for granted, assumptions about what marriage is or should be, people are starting to say, how do we define this? Adam and Eve in the beginning... Two became one flesh. The prototype for marriage. But technically, marriage in itself? I don't think so. And I don't think so because I think fundamentally marriage is something of the law. Something man-made. A legalization or a, a realization of something transcendent in a relationship that's there and giving a stamp or a seal to it. And while I am not in any way advocating that that means the dismissal of marriage or 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 the lack of sanctity of marriage or something like that, in the wooden way you put it, I think God created marriage or instituted marriage in his law for civil and legal purposes. I know that's going to open up a thousand more. Have fun with it. All right. God says in Scripture, many will choose the wide path to destruction and few will choose the path to life. Why would God create people knowing most of them would end up in hell? Yeah, it kind of goes hand in hand with that sin question earlier, of why he allows it in the world, doesn't he? Because you're almost like God just, so like don't create it all. You could push this. Why would God create any of us if he knew his son had to die? Why would he create any of us if he knew he would break our hearts? Why do you have kids? Because you know they'll break yours. Right? Don't dehumanize God in the philosophizing of some of these questions. Um, I can't really answer it better than that. So, what would Jesus say the meaning of life is? Hear God, obey his commands. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be his image bearer. Further my work of creation. Find my calling and purpose on your life and make the created order all that I meant it to be because you are my second in command, humanity. You are the ones here in my stead. You are the vice regents. You are the rulers of this world. Rule well rule wise, rule justly, rule compassionately. That's about it. I was taught in school that we were evolved from apes, but at church we started off with Adam and Eve. What is correct? Well, again, it depends who you ask. You're asking an interpretive question here. What do I believe? I do not believe that we are evolved from apes, though apes are really cool. Um, I believe that when the Old Testament talks about Adam and Eve, it wasn't just a, 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 an allegory if I can use that, but it was actually talking about a a real chick and a real dude. Um, And that all of us can trace our genealogy at some point back to them. Does that mean evolution in all of its forms is incorrect? No, not necessarily. What would Jesus think of modern Judaism? Depends what branch. How old is too old? Forty-seven. And the follow-up to that, today is Mark Chaffee's birthday. Can we sing happy birthday to him? Um, no. <laughs> I can't seem to overcome my desire to satisfy homosexual urges. How am I supposed to accept this about myself when most Christians, including myself, know that it's against God? Can I be forgiven and then forgiven again? Yes. 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 Jesus died for you. Whatever your sin, you can be forgiven. Not only can you be in Christ, you are. So whatever shame and guilt you're bearing right now over whatever this might be alluding to, grab hold of that unlimited grace because he died for you, brother or sister out there. He died for you and you are forgiven and he loves you, okay? Now we've got that. I can't seem to overcome my my desires, though. How do I accept this about myself? It is a hard reality of life. As someone who is heterosexual and married, I feel so hypocritical giving advice in this because it is not the same struggle for me and I am never going to pretend that I know your struggle. All right. What I can share with you simply is this. All of us in this world have crosses to bear. And it sounds great as a cliche until times like this come and you go, crosses are evil, ugly, painful things. And it's not just struggling with homosexuality, it's struggling with heterosexuality or struggling with a thousand other sins too. And it's the path God calls you to. And I encourage you and pray for you Bear the cross. Bear the cross to the glory of Christ and surround yourself, because I tell you, surround yourself with people that are batting for you, that love you, that are rooting for you, that can help you on the journey, because don't fight this one alone. There is a reason it's called being in the closet, because people hide in shame. Don't hide on this one alone. You need a community of people that are pulling for you if you're going to make it through this journey, okay? Okay? Come talk to me. Come talk to me. A child who dies and is too young to, quote, know or, quote, understand faith or Jesus love, will they still go to heaven as a child? Gotta answer this a few different ways. On one hand, I do not believe in an age of innocence. That somehow infants or babies or children up to a certain age are not sinners. Meet some young kids. (laughs) All right? You can't get around this one. Psalm 51, all of us are conceived and born sinful. So even infants need salvation. I know you're going, well, what did they do? It betrays how you think about sin. Because sin is not just about actions, it's about who you are. And all of us from the time that we are not only born but conceived are are corrupt. We're corrupt. We're not all we're meant to be. So what about them with heaven if they die before they know? You know what? Jesus died for them too. And I'll tell you, faith does not equal salvation. Faith does not equal transformation. Faith is a sign of salvation and transformation. See, this is the biggest evangelical blunder that I see out there today. That faith equals cognitive understanding. Where do you get that? Now, faith should certainly mature and grow into cognitive understanding. But I think faith as its root is something deeper. Inclination of the heart. Instinct. Will. The the example I like to give. Can a newborn trust his mother despite the fact he doesn't know his mother's name? Just observe it and see if it's true. Likewise, if you're going to make faith equal cognitive understanding, just roam the Alzheimer's war sometime with me and ask me, has disease actually robbed people of faith? You want to go down that road? See what I mean? What about the severely mentally ill? Does that mean they can't have faith? Even when the scripture says that God is always batting for the least of these? So, what you do in situations like this is you go, you know, maybe I never had a sign out of my three month old or the stillborn that they've confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord, but that doesn't mean they can't have faith. And God is pretty unscrupulous. He gets at people in all kinds of cool, wicked, nasty ways. You know what I'm saying? you got to trust God on this one, that he is good, that he is just, that he is merciful, and he's got all kinds of tricks up his sleeves. All right, next one. Yeah. Uh, sorry, it, it skipped. I have noticed many questions related to sexuality. Sexual sins seem to carry greater weight and judgment in a Christian culture. I suspect everyone struggles with sexual sin on some level, yet we judge and condemn this sin more than others. Why? Because as Christians, we're messed up. Because as Christians, we're sinners. And different cultures at different times have always pinpointed certain sins and given them more weight and emphasis when the reality is all sin dishonors God. All sin deserves judgment. All sin requires salvation. I mean, I think the sexual one, though, honestly, I think it carries extra weight for a lot of people just because it is so personal and vulnerable. You know, I, I lie, and it doesn't seem to affect me the same way. It isn't as personal or vulnerable. My soul ain't on the line, though I think it actually is. But you know what I mean? Likewise, I think some of the effects of it are more immediately noticeable. Things like pregnancy or disease or the way it shatters a family or things like these. And it's easy to kind of jump on the bandwagon for the sins that we feel the immediate effect from while we turn a blind eye to pride because that ain't never hurt anyone, right? Yeah, I think you're right on in your observation. And it's... uh, it's unfortunate that that's often the way it is. After the second coming, will this earth become heaven? What will happen to the, pre- the previous heaven as we think about it now? Um, yeah, it will. Heaven is where God is. So if God comes to earth, guess where heaven came? Right? This is why Revelation talks about the new heaven and the new earth, as though it is the same entity. Is it possible to lose one's salvation or one saved always saved? It depends if you ask Calvin or Arminius. Was that unsatisfying? Yeah? We'll cope. Two questions. Who cuts your hair? Um, her name is uh, Jessie. How can someone have faith and unbelief at the same time? Uh, Allah, the Father who told Jesus, help my unbelief. Because faith is about um, trust, faith is a choice. All right, in many ways, have you ever wanted to do something that you were afraid to do and you stood there in uncertainty? Do I leap? Do I jump? Do I do this? And you're wrestling within? I, I once heard it put this way. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing the job despite fear being there. Right? Would you agree? You're not courageous if you're not afraid. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is doubting. Faith is trusting, despite the fact that doubt might be there. Faith is more about overcoming than it is about the absence of something, just like joy is not the absence of conflict. And the Bible talks about not getting tattoos, is that still relevant today? It is wildly relevant today, but the relevance doesn't per se mean that you shouldn't get tattoos. Sorry guys, give me a sec. Time for a couple more. When someone dies, do they actually stand in front of God and have to confess um, he's God, or is it based on how they feel when they die? All right, here's the thing. When you stand in front of God, you're not going to be sitting there making rational choices. All right? When you stand in front of God, you are going to be standing in front of the overwhelming power of the universe. And what it says is that on that day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone, by virtue of what they experience and what they see, regardless of the course of their life, regardless of their future destiny, will go, oh, he's God. That's how it works. If um, if you're not in a romantic relationship, is lust still a sin? We're back to the sexual one, whoever asked that question earlier. Um, lust is always a sin. But sexual attraction is not the same thing as lust. Is there any spiritual religious significance to blood and water flowing when Jesus was stabbed in the side? Yes. If we are all able, if all we are to do is love one another, why is it so difficult to do? Because you're a sinner. Because you're messed up. And I am too. I know, it seems like it should be so easy, right? And let's face it, man, there are just some losers in this world, right? And this is the problem. You're one of them. And I am too. (laughs) If we could just get that one right, how wonderful would the world be? All right, that one, for time's sake, is uh, not going to be able to be done. So I've got one more for time today. Just how big is God? Really, really big. Think of the biggest thing you can imagine, and then go bigger. Okay? And then do that a thousand more times. And then do that again. And maybe at that point, you're getting to a sliver. We think of God so often as tucked neatly in here. Think about the aspect that not only the galaxy, but the universe is infinitesimal to God. The God of this universe is bigger than we can ever dream. I love how Paul puts it. No mind can conceive. No heart can can dream. Just how big, and he adds this, is the love of God for his people. Guys, some incredible questions there. Amazing questions. And if I got to it today, um, I hope it helped you in your journey in some way. And I hope that it actually spurred More questions because I think any good, I think God is so big that any good answer should lead us to five more questions about Him. And I shared this at nine, I'll share it with you. If I did not get to your question today, I've got good news. I've got email. Okay? I get them anonymously. I don't know who you are. But if there is a question here today that you are churning and burning on, Shoot me a line, tackle me after church, come find me. I would love to speak into it, help you, and point you in the right directions as best as I am able. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep searching for who God is and all his wonder with all your heart. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, he said, Take and eat. This is my body. And it's given for you. And he took a cup after supper, and he, and he gave it to his disciples as well, these people that were just with him. He took this cup, and he said, take and drink. This is my blood. It's shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Guys, I'd like to invite you to rise. Cool prayer that we're going to pray together. It's called the Apostles' Creed. Christians have been praying it for centuries. There's things in there that speak to me. I hope you like it as well.